November 1957, Plainfield, Wisconsin. Police arrive at the home of a local farmer and handyman with a search warrant after a murder earlier that day pointed to the mild-mannered but odd man. What they discovered in the farmhouse would become one of the most notorious true crimes in American history, inspiring fictional characters of horror movies for years to come. He was the real Norman Bates, the real Leatherface, the real Buffalo Bill. This is the true and gruesome story of Ed Gein. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody yes welcome 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 and for our hawaiian friends i know we've done that but this is a different language okay wilena 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 all right yeah there you go you you could have done because we're we're in the midwest you could have just done howdy 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 (laughs) i guess i could have yeah because we're going to wisconsin today the land of cheese curds oh yeah like them cheese curds well wherever you're listening be sure to like rate and review that helps other people to find us you can go join our in-laws and outlaws group in in facebook Mm -hmm. i'm going to post tons of pictures from this case into uh our facebook group this week because this is a crazy case i've been sitting on this one just for halloween i'm very Uh excited to do this so I'm I'm ready. This is a little bit long, but I'll get through it. You might have to listen on the way to work and on the way home from work, <laughs> but it's totally worth it. Okay. Before I get started, I want to thank some sources, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, The Sun News, The Stevens Point Journal, The Capital Times, The Lacrosse Tribune, AE.com, The Radford University Department of Psychology, The Charlie Project, and The Big Book of Serial Killers. There you go. There are several books about Ed Gein. Deviant by Harold Schechter seems to be the most popular. I didn't read it. It is on my TBR list, my to-be-read list, which is very long. (laughs) But I will provide a link to it in the show notes. Okay. This is a disturbing and gruesome case. You have been warned. Uh Uh-oh. All right. Let's go. Edward Theodore Gein was born on August 27, 1906, in La Crosse County, Wisconsin. His parents are George Philip Gein and Augusta Wilhelmine Lurk Gein. These two marry in 1900, and by 1902, George is already out of work. Hmm. Now, Ed's going to have an older brother, Henry George Gein, and Henry is seven years older than Ed. But their father, George, was an abusive alcoholic who couldn't hold down a steady job. His dad worked in insurance sales. He was a carpenter. He was a tanner, meaning he tanned animal hide for leather. But when Ed is born, his mother owned and operated a small grocery in La Crosse, which was pretty lucrative. Now, Ed's born with a growth on his left eyelid, which caused him to have what they called a, quote, lazy eye. But it was really more of a droopy lid. It's not really a lazy eye. Right. 
And I read at the age of seven, Ed watched his parents slaughtering a hog in the shed behind the family store, and he was sexually excited by it. What? At age seven? Wow. With And a hog? A hog, yeah. Hmm. Okay. But at the age of eight, Ed's mom sells the groceries so she could move the whole family to a farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin. Now, Augusta was a religious zealot. I've read that she was a devoted Lutheran, fervent in the ways of the Lord. There you go. Augusta thought sin was everywhere, that the world was an immoral place full of alcohol and loose women. And in fact, she would preach to her two boys that women, not her, of course, but women, were naturally promiscuous and instruments of the devil. (laughs) Yeah, so according to Augusta, women, not her, are going to suck your soul and murder your puppies. (laughs) And she repeatedly warned her sons of the immorality and looseness of women, hoping to discourage any sexual desires the boys might have had for fear of them being cast down into hell. I'm sure that worked on them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're adolescent boys, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was a domineering and hard woman who believed her views of the world were absolute and true. She had no difficulty forcefully imposing her beliefs on her sons and her husband. And speaking of George, Augusta loathed George. Oh, she hated her husband. She made no bones about it. He was an alcoholic. And I wrote in here, what's the saying? Mommy drinks because you cry. (laughs) And I was thinking maybe George was drinking because Augusta made him want to gouge his eyeballs out. But I'm not saying that's the case because I know he was abusive, but so was she in her own ways. And I'm allowed to speculate. So I did. But she was as ugly to George as she was to her own boys. She was rarely pleased with Henry and Ed and thought they were destined to become failures just like their dad. Wow. Sounds like a great home life. (laughs) Sounds like a horrible home life, right? Yeah. She would read to her two sons every day from the Bible and loved verses from the Old Testament, as well as the book of Revelation that were centered on death, Mm. murder, and divine retribution. So the Great Flood and Noah, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Ten Plagues, the Apocalypse, all the good stuff. She just read all the good stuff to him. But she was great at parties. Oh, she didn't go to parties. She was never around anybody. Now, part of the reason George and Augusta moved to Plainfield, Wisconsin from La Crosse is because it is even more isolated. And Plainfield is a town of maybe 300 people back then. Today, it's just over 800 with about 200 families. And the Geens moved six miles outside of this tiny little town. And you know how we talk about a country mile? Mm -hmm. Six country miles? It feels like forever. Well, I live 12 country miles outside of my small town, so I know exactly. My dad used to joke they had to to pipe sunlight back to us. Pipe the sunlight back there? (laughs) Well, if there was sunlight piped back, Augusta put it out. So. But they begin living on this 195-acre farm with a farmhouse that has no electricity at the corner of Archer and 2nd Avenue. And Augusta used their new home's isolation to her benefit because it was easier for her two boys to stay away from other people, girls, women, anybody who might have had a different kind of influence on them. Anybody whose influence was different than hers. Right. And Ed and his brother Henry would only leave the house to go to school. And other than school, both boys worked on the farm. Now, Ed was a good student at Roshakry Grade School, a tiny one-room building with 12 students. Oh, wow. 
And Ed was known to be odd. His teachers will remember him as peculiar. He would apparently laugh out loud for no reason to himself. He was cracking himself up. (laughs) So Ed and I have one thing in common, obviously, because I do that as well. He apparently had a lesion on his tongue that affected his speech in some way. But Ed did try to make friends at school. But Augusta would punish him, like physically punish him for not obeying her. No outside people ever. No wire hangers (laughs) ever. (laughs) And his schoolmates shunned him because he was effeminate and shy. I mean, there are only 12 kids in the whole building. Yeah. He's effeminate and shy. He had no friends. And when he attempted to make them, Augusta would yell at him and tell him he was going to hell. And when he came home crying because he didn't have friends, his father, George, would beat him until his ears were ringing. Good Lord. So little Eddie, which is what they call him. Everybody calls him Eddie. I just stuck with Ed because Mm -hmm. that's how everybody knows him. But little Eddie can't catch a break. Now, when Ed is 12, his mother catches him masturbating in the bathtub. She grabs his genitals. What? Yeah. Mm. Augusta grips the three-piece set and calls them the curse of man. (laughs) So the octagon, James Uh, Westfall, and Dr. Kenneth Noisewater. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) You ladies play your cards right. You might just get to meet the whole game. (laughs) Name that movie. There, I got to get it in. I got one in today. All right. When Augusta stops Ed and his brother from making friends, Ed becomes really sad. But he saw his mother, Augusta, as the epitome of goodness. And he followed her orders to the best of his ability, including promising to always stay a virgin. Wow. So Augusta can grab his junk, but everybody else better keep their hands off (laughs) the curse of man, right? Wow. And even though Ed was a social outcast, mostly because of his mother, he did pretty well in school because Ed loved to read. But he drops out when he's around 13 years old so he can work on the family farm. But I think it was so Augusta could keep him away from the demon girls and boys during those formative years of adolescence. But also his father at this point is a helpless drunk and is completely dependent on the family. So the boys would work and he'd drink away the money. Hmm. When Ed is 18, he's called up to serve his country. He goes to Milwaukee, where he is rejected because of the growth on his left eyelid, which slightly impaired his vision. And going to Milwaukee when he's called up to serve his country is the farthest Ed will ever travel from his home. Wow. His whole world is right there. Wow. She's kept him hostage. She's kept him hostage. Yeah. Now, on April 1st, 1940... Ed's dad, George, dies of heart failure, which was probably due to his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And Augusta attributed his death to his weakness and told her boys that dad was going to hell. (laughs) So it's not like, I'm so sorry your father has passed away. He's in a better place. No, your dad is going to hell. But by this time, Ed is 33 years old and still living at home. And his older brother, Henry, who's 40, also still lives at home. So now it's Augusta and the two boys. Well, the two men. So basically, they've, they've, you know, basically been brainwashed by her. So they're completely dependent on her and they're just, they're stuck. Well, Ed is. Yeah. So, because hang on. Okay. 
Ed fell in line with his mom, but Henry, the oldest son, he pushed back on his mom's ways and her controlling nature. But Ed and Henry both take odd jobs around the city to help make ends meet at the farm. Both of them were considered reliable and honest, and they both worked handyman jobs. But Ed also made money being, wait for it. No idea. A babysitter. Really? A babysitter. He loved to babysit. Okay. Now, can you imagine if your claim to fame was that Ed Gein was your babysitter wow. growing up? I mean, yeah. yeah. And he's going to do this until 1957 when he is 51 years old. Good grief. Now, looking back, there are those who've said it was because Ed related better to children than he did to adults in his life. I guess that kind of makes sense. And the fact that he liked to read a lot. Yeah, Ed's escape from adult life was reading, which is a lot of people's escape. I mean, Mm -hmm. reading is very therapeutic to me, even reading about killers. Mm -hmm. And some people think listening to podcasts is therapeutic, even podcasts about killers. Thank you for being here. But Ed's older brother, Henry, can see the kind of influence and hold Augusta has over his brother, and he's concerned about it. And Henry would talk smack about their mother in front of Ed, and Ed didn't like it one little bit because Ed... Ed worshipped his mother. Hmm. He thought she could do no wrong. But Henry's breaking away, and that's not all he's doing. Henry is dating a woman, a divorced mother of two, and he had plans to move in with her. And why not have a life of your own? You're almost 50 years old. I mean, for goodness sake, yeah. I actually want to know what this woman was like. I've got a picture, and I will post it. And I just have to tell you, she actually looks like she's the spawn of the devil. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. Kind of makes sense. I'm not kidding. Then on May 16th, 1944, Henry and Ed are burning the fields on their farm, burning away the marsh, and the fire gets out of control. And it wasn't until I lived on a farm that I realized this was a real thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the controlled burning of the fields. Mm -hmm. To me, that was very scary, but it's something they do every year. Yeah, they used to do that all the time out where we lived. Yeah. But these two are burning the fields, and Ed and Henry get separated. The fire gets out of control, and it catches the attention of the volunteer firefighters, which are usually other farmers, by the way. Right. But when the fire is out, only then does Ed report to the police that his brother Henry is missing. Okay. And when the group of policemen and firemen come back with lanterns and flashlights to look for Henry, Ed, who said, I can't find Henry, leads the whole lot of them straight to his brother. I have no idea where he is, but follow me. Oh, here he is. (laughs) He happened to be right here. That's what it was. (laughs) But Henry hadn't suffered from any burns. He was face down. He had been dead for a little bit by then. And the official report from the medical examiner is going to be that Henry had a heart attack and then also died from smoke inhalation. Hmm. But Henry has some mysterious bruising on his head. So did he hit his head when he had the heart attack or did Brother Ed knock him out, let him be overcome with fire and smoke and then lead everybody to his dead brother? Right. And if that's the case, did he do it so his brother would stop talking smack about Augusta? Mm, yeah. And don't forget, Henry was just about to leave both of them behind to go live with his girlfriend. Gotcha. 
So if you've ever read Oedipus Tyrannus, the play by Sophocles, Ed definitely has an Oedipus complex. And just to refresh your memory from freshman year of high school literature class, the king of Thebes is warned by an oracle that his son would kill him. And when his wife Jocasta actually has a son, he takes the baby and leaves it exposed in order to murder the little boy. But a shepherd finds the baby and he is adopted by the king of Corinth and his wife. And Oedipus is brought up as their child. Then as a man, Oedipus encounters the king of Thebes, which is his father, and these two get into a quarrel. His father provokes him, and Oedipus kills him. Now, there's some other stuff in there, but the long and short of it is he solves this riddle, and in return, he's given the crown of the king of Thebes and also his widow. Hmm. So Oedipus marries his mother. Right. Because he gets the widow, and these two have four children, and when the truth comes out, Jocasta commits suicide, and Oedipus blinds himself, and he goes off, and he lives in exile. But Freud came up with a concept, and it's long been called the obsession with one's mother by a son, and it is often accompanied by envious and aggressive feelings toward the father. And Freud thought that it was because of, quote, unresolved internal conflict during the phallic phase, end quote. But many believe that Ed's psychological maturity is stunted and stuck in adolescence. And because his mother is the only female he's ever come in contact with, Augusta is the love of his life. Okay. Now, it's unknown if Ed was sexually attracted to his mother or if he was just afraid of other women or thought of them to be the spawn of the devil because of Augusta. Nobody really knows. But after Henry is dead, Augusta is very sad, and she suffers a stroke shortly after, and Ed becomes Augusta's sole caregiver. And it's his time to shine because his father and his brother are out of the way, and now he has his mother all to himself. Augusta is never going to recover from the stroke, and Ed is going to get into bed with his mother Mm. so he can comfort her, and he can caress her, and he can take care of her. Mm -mm -mm. And Augusta will have another stroke and die on December 29th, 1945, at the age of 67. Ed is 39 years old. He is devastated. Sure. And like a child at his mother's funeral, he had zero emotional control. He was wailing. He was screaming and crying. He's lost his only friend, his only companion, and the only woman in his life. The only connection he had to humanity, really. Honestly, it's true. Yeah. And now he's six miles out of this tiny little town all by himself in an isolated farmhouse with no electricity. He'd lost his only friend, his one true love, his mama. He's absolutely alone in the world with himself and his thoughts. Wow. Never a good thing. Mm -mm. Now, Ed works as a handyman around town and was known even as an adult for being odd, but also meek and mild-mannered and simple-minded, but nice. Hmm. They thought he was a nice guy. He qualified for farm subsidies from the government, and that helped him to get by. And he also worked for a local municipal road crew and the crop threshing crews. And then sometime between 1946 and 1956, he sold off. 80 acres that belonged to his brother, Henry. Okay. All right. 
So he's getting a little bit of money. This is how he's surviving. Sure. Now, after his mother's death, Ed does not take care of the farmhouse at all. He closes off all the rooms that he and his mother shared, including the upstairs, the downstairs parlor, the living room. He never touched them again. It was a living shrine to Augusta. Wow. And he lived only in a small room next to the kitchen. But then Ed starts reading more than just the Bible. Ed likes pulp magazines and adventure stories, and especially stories about Nazis and their cruel ways, as well as stories about cannibals. And he also liked anatomy books. Mm. Say it with me. That's That's called foreshadowing. Yeah. Now, in many of the books he read, he learned about the South Sea headhunters and the process of shrinking heads and exhuming corpses from graves. But he also liked to read newspapers and, in particular, obituaries. Everybody's got to have a hobby, I guess. Obituaries. (laughs) Well, wait till you hear about Ed's hobby. Yeah. 18 months after Ed's mother dies, driven by loneliness and strange visions, Ed starts to visit the grave of his mother. After several visits, Ed begins robbing graves. Mm. I've read that the first grave that he disturbed was actually Augusta's. Wow. That he twisted her head off with his bare hands and took her head and shrunk it in a similar way that the book he had read said to. Wow. Then for the next 12 years, Ed will watch the obituaries and rob from three different cemeteries near him. The Plainfield Cemetery, where his mother, father, and brother are buried. The Spiritland Cemetery, which I thought was an interesting name, the Spiritland Cemetery, and Hancock Cemetery. And what Ed is looking for is the freshly buried bodies of middle-aged women who reminded him of Augusta. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's that's really twisted. Yeah. He would make as many as 40 visits to these three cemeteries robbing graves. Mm. And most of them he left intact after he came out of his, quote, days-like state, end quote, and he returned home. But at least nine times he robbed the graves where he took either body parts or the whole body. Wow. And in fact, during the late 40s and through the 1950s, Wisconsin police began to notice an increase in missing persons. But these are living missing persons. And there were four cases that baffled the police in particular. And I'm going to go through them. Do it. The first was Georgia Jean Weckler. She disappeared coming home from school at 3.30 p.m. on May 1st, 1947. The neighbors saw Georgia collect a large bundle of letters from her family's mailbox, and she started walking down the driveway. But she never arrived at her house. Hmm. And hundreds of people and police searched the 10 square miles of Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, hoping to find her. She was wearing a light blue shirt with a pink button sweater over it, a blue skirt with a red moon or flower pattern, blue jeans under the skirt, rubber boots or brown moccasin type shoes with reddish colored composition soles and a brown flowered headscarf. So I imagine, you know, since they lived out or in this small town, that the driveway was probably one of these really long stone gravel driveways. It had to be a, a lane that yeah. led back to yeah. their farm. That That's what sense. I'm thinking too. Yep. But Georgia has never been seen or heard from again, and there were no suspects, and the only evidence police ever found were tire marks near the place where Georgia was last seen. The tire marks were of a Ford. 
Okay. And witnesses reported seeing a dark-colored, possibly black, four-door 1936 Ford sedan with a gray plastic spotlight in the vicinity that afternoon. And the car vanished at the same time Georgia did, and deep tire tracks were later found on the road as if a vehicle had pulled out fast. Okay. And someone said that they thought the car was being driven by a blonde man. Now, Georgia doesn't match Ed's usual M.O., And more than one serial child predator confessed to picking up Georgia, but none of their tips ever panned out or led to anything. But Ed did have a black Ford sedan. And Georgia has never been heard from again. And the mail she was carrying at the time of her disappearance has never been found. Hmm. Another girl disappeared six years later in La Crosse, Wisconsin. 15-year-old Evelyn Grace Hartley had been babysitting a 20-month-old girl at the home of a La Crosse State College professor. It was homecoming on the weekend of October 24, 1953 at La Crosse College. And Evelyn vanished into thin air. Her father repeatedly tried to call Evelyn at the house where she was babysitting. There wasn't an answer. He gets worried. He goes over to the professor's house to try to check on his daughter. Evelyn's father finds that the house's doors are locked and the lights are on and he can hear the radio on and he can see that the baby is asleep and unharmed in the crib. But there's no sign of his daughter, Evelyn. And the furniture inside the living room was all disarranged and Evelyn's textbooks were scattered. One of her shoes and her eyeglasses, which were broken, were on the living room floor. Her other shoe was found in the basement. All the windows in the house locked except a basement window in the back of the house. The screen for that window had been taken out, was leaning against the wall outside, and a short stepladder was positioned at the window at the basement. It actually belonged to the family who lived there because they had been painting. Gotcha. Three other windows had pry marks. There were footprints from a pair of sneakers in the basement window box and in the living room. And in addition to the indications of forced entry, there was a significant amount of blood of Evelyn's type, both inside the house and near the basement window and outside in the yard. And there were these two pools of blood in the yard and one stain, one pool of blood was 18 inches in diameter. Wow. This is a lot of, this is a lot of blood. She lost a lot of blood. There was also a bloody handprint about four feet off the ground on a wall of a garage, 100 feet from the professor's home and stains on the home of a neighbor's house. They look extensively for Evelyn. They look look everywhere for Evelyn. And a few days later, some of her bloodied clothes, her panties and bra were found near a highway just outside of La Crosse. Four miles further away, a pair of men's bloody pants are found. Evelyn's kidnapping sparked one of the biggest searches in Wisconsin history. Among other extreme measures, investigators conducted mass searches of local vehicles and gave lie detector tests to all the students and teachers at Evelyn's school. They are really, really looking for her. They took the shoes and the jacket to 31 different communities in the area. They displayed them to over 10,000 people, but nobody recognized them. Wow. And many suspects were questioned over the years, but there was never any evidence to implicate anyone. Gotcha. Ed Gein just happened to be visiting relatives in La Crosse, just blocks from the home where she was babysitting on the night of her disappearance. Coincidence? I don't think so. Yeah. In 1951, Ed digs up Eleanor Adams, a 51-year-old woman who had been buried on August 26th. 
Then in 1952, Victor Bunk, Travis, and Ray Burgess stopped for a drink in a bar in Plainfield, Wisconsin before heading out to deer hunt. And these two spend several hours at the bar before leaving because I guess that's what you do. You drink a lot and then you <laughs> get some brown liquor in you, get all liquored up, and then arm. get a firearm to go shoot something. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. The only thing missing from that equation is a chainsaw. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But these two leave the bar in their car. They're never seen again. Another massive search happened, but there's no trace of them. And they, like Georgia and Evelyn, just vanished. Then on December 8th, 1954, a Plainfield, Wisconsin tavern keeper, 55-year-old Mary Hogan, mysteriously disappears from the Pine Grove Tavern. And Seymour Lester, a neighbor, he went to the tavern around 5.15 p.m. to buy himself some ice cream. I love these old newspaper articles because they really get into some of the minutiae. And he opened the door and he found blood on the floor. And then he notified the chairman of the town of Pine Grove, which is maybe like the mayor. Yeah, or the city manager. But the chairman, Villas O. Waterman, calls the sheriff, Sheriff Harold Thompson, who thinks... Something's hanky. Right. And they find an empty bullet cartridge, a twenty-two, on the floor of the tavern floor that had rolled out into the parking lot, along with blood stains leading from the bar room through the door to a spot where a car or a truck had been parked. Okay. And the cigar box that was used as the till had been, quote, rifled. <laughs> and I, I just love these old newspaper articles. And yeah. the neighbors think it was a considerable amount of money that somebody had taken. Police think she was shot while she was sitting at a table reading and drinking coffee. And they think that she was killed or taken by someone she knew mm. because Mary kept the door locked unless uh, she knew you. Right. She only opened it for people that she knew. And Ed was transfixed by Mary because she she reminded him of Augusta. Augusta. Right, yeah. Yes. And so he was hanging out with her that night, drinking, and then he pulled the blinds in the bar and put a twenty-two to her forehead and shot her. Wow. A day after the murder, Ed is working with a man named Elmo Eek, and Ed admits to Elmo that he killed Mary and that he had her hung up at his house, and Elmo didn't believe him. Wow. Yeah. He was like, yeah, that lady's missing. I killed her. Yeah, she's hanging up at my house. Yuck, 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 yuck. And he's going, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, Yeah, whatever. Yeah. But at this point, police are thinking that whatever happened to Mary is the same thing that happened to Georgia, Evelyn, Victor, and Ray, because she's just, she's disappeared. Right. And the only thing that all of these missing people had in common is that they went missing in or around Plainfield, Wisconsin. Hmm. And where does Ed live? Plainfield, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. On November 16th, 1957, it's the first day of deer hunting season in Wisconsin, and the whole damn town is out in the woods hunting. Like, this town is a ghost town. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever lived in a small town, when the whole town goes out of out of the area for, like, a championship basketball game or it's deer hunting season, there's always somebody who puts up the sign, the last person out, turn out the lights right. kind of thing, because yeah. they all know each other. Sure. But everybody's out deer hunting. And Ed drives into town to the local hardware store, Warden's. It's owned by Bernice Warden. And Bernice is a 58-year-old widow. 
And Bernice is a woman that 51-year-old Ed is interested in. Hmm. He would come to the hardware store and hang out. He even asked Bernice out. He was obsessed with her because she reminded him of Augusta. Augusta, yeah. She rebuffs his advances, but on this particular morning when everybody, including Bernice's son Frank, is out deer hunting, Ed comes into the store asking to buy a half a gallon of antifreeze. And Bernice pours out the antifreeze and writes up a receipt for cash that Ed has given her. He takes it out to his black Ford car and then comes back in and asks to see a rifle that's in the window that's for sale. Hmm. And when Bernice turns around and has her back to Ed, Ed shoots her in the back of the head and then drags her out to his car, loads up her body, and drives back to the farm. Wow. Yeah. Now, Bernice isn't going to be missed for hours because nobody's in town. Right. But when somebody goes to the hardware store and nobody's there, they call Frank and say, hey, where's your mom? Right. Where is your mom? And Frank comes back from hunting and sees the trail of blood through the store and out the door. And he knows something bad has happened to his mother. Well, yeah. And immediately he thinks of... Ed Gein, Mm. because he'd been sniffing around the store all the time, and he'd asked his mother out, and she had said, no, thank you. Yeah, and I'm sure that she said that to her son. Yeah. To let him know that this guy's a little uh, little creepy. Yeah, weird Ed is hanging around the store and wants to take me out. Yeah. So Frank looks around the store. The cash register is missing. Then he goes through the store receipts, and the last person to buy anything, Ed Gein, Mm. one half gallon of antifreeze. Wow. Ed didn't think uh, didn't think this through. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he thinks any of it through. Yeah, exactly. Now, on that night, one of the families that Ed was a babysitter for, the Hills, Lester Hills children walked down the town road from their parents' house to visit their 51-year-old babysitter, Ed. They were inviting him to dinner. Okay. Ed comes out of the woodshed and tells the children he'll be ready as soon as he finishes, quote, dressing his deer, end quote. Yeah. But the children think this is odd because Ed wasn't a hunter. Ed didn't hunt. Right. He never went deer hunting, but he joined the children and he walked off to Les Hill's home for dinner. (laughs) Just down the lane with these two little kids. (laughs) Just frolicking. Now, one boy who Ed sometimes looked after, after visiting Ed's farm, had later said that Ed had human heads in his bedroom. And Ed tells the boy that they're shrunken heads from the Philippines and the South Seas. They're relics from headhunters and World War II. And this kid tells people in town what he's seen. He's like, Ed's got some weird stuff. And the adults are like, stop telling tales, boy. (laughs) And he's saying, hand to Jesus. Ed's got heads. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. But then two other little boys go to Ed's farm, and they, too, see preserved heads of women. But then they thought they were just weird Halloween costumes. Hmm. And it's a small town, and rumors were flying, and soon most of the people in town were gossiping about what kind of strange things Ed was keeping up at the farm. But no one's ever really going to go past saying, Ed's knuck and futz. Yeah. And people in town even questioned him about the heads or what the boys had seen at Ed's place. And he just looked at them and would smile. He would never confirm or deny. deny yeah. He would just smile at them. Ed's heads. And people didn't think anything of it. Right. So back to Bernice, because meanwhile, Bernice's son, Frank, is talking to the sheriff. And he says, let's go find that crazy 
fucker Ed Gein. <laughs> He's the last person to see my mom. Right. Also a paraphrase. <laughs> so police drove out to Ed's place, the old homestead of the family, and they're going to have a look-see. Plainfield Sheriff Arthur Schley makes it to the farmhouse first on the night of November 17th, 1957. When they arrive, Ed isn't home because he's off having dinner with the neighbors. Okay. But the sheriff's got a search warrant, and he's going in. And as Sheriff Schley wades through the trash in the dark summer kitchen, remember the house doesn't have electricity, and it's November, so it's dark out, he brushes up against something that's hanging from the ceiling. Oh, no. And if you don't know what a summer kitchen is, it's like a small outdoor building. It's built for the purpose of cooking outside when it's really hot outside. It's for hot summer months. But what Sheriff Schley thinks he's brushing up against, he thinks he's brushing up against a deer hanging from the rafters because it's the first day of hunting season, deer hunting season. Right. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. This part is really graphic. So if you want to fast forward, be my guest. You've been warned. I get emails from people who say, I needed a trigger warning. Here's your trigger warning. <laughs> this is it. I can't be any more specific. This is your trigger. Sheriff Schley thinks he's brushing up against a deer hanging from the rafters. No. He shines his flashlight to get a better look, and it's a naked human carcass beheaded, disemboweled, and hung upside down from the ceiling beam. It's the freshly gutted remains of Bernice. Wow. Her head will be found in a burlap bag in another part of the house. And when they find her head, nails had been hammered through each ear and tied with twine, like each ear, Mm. and he was going to hang it like a trophy. And detectives spent the entire night and the next day going through the house and documenting everything they found at Ed's place. Wow. And it's a lot. Wow. And here's what's been going on in the old Gein homestead. Here's Ed's inventory. Yes. Ed had been using body parts of women to create a series of artifacts, so to speak. And here's what they found. Whole human bones and fragments, some holding up tables, like a femur used as a table leg. A belt that had been fashioned and studded with human nipples. Mm. Soup bowls made from the top of skulls. Oh, wow. There were lampshades made from the skin of a human face. Human skin was covering several chair seats. Mm. Like instead of a cane bottom chair, it was a human skin chair. There were human skulls on his bedpost. A waste paper basket had been made of human skin. Mm. There was a box full of noses. Four, four noses. What? A curtain pull with a pair of women's lips sewn into it. He had a shoebox under his bed, and inside were the dried remains of female genitalia. Nine of them. Wow. They discovered a young girl's dress and the genitalia of two females thought to be around 15 years old. Mm, Okay. On the wall were the faces of nine women. Wow. All carefully preserved and mounted like a hunter would have mounted his trophies. Holy cow. Mary Hogan's face was in a paper bag. Mary Hogan's skull was in a box. That's the that's the innkeeper, the the barkeeper. Right, right. 
Bernice's heart was in a plastic bag in front of Ed's pot-bellied stove. There were fingernails from female fingers, and gloves had been fashioned out of human skin. And finally, here it is. Hanging in the closet was a corset made of human skin, complete with a set of breasts. Wow. It was from shoulders to waist, and he had made leggings from human leg skin. He made a skin suit of a woman. He made a skin suit to become his mother. Yeah. It it takes a lot to freak me out or gross me out or whatever. This, um, on a scale of one to 10, this is probably like a 27. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And police are thinking, hey, the guy with a nipple belt and a skin suit might have something to do with the disappearance of Georgia and Victor and Ray and Mary. Yeah. Well, someone goes to the home of Les Hill where Ed is having dinner with his neighbors and they say, Ed, you got to come with us. Yeah. You got to come with us. We got a couple questions for you. Yeah. And they take Ed to the Watoma jailhouse in Washera County and start to ask him some questions. Okay. And back at the Gein farm, they're excavating the land. Now, in the beginning, Ed totally denies knowing anything about the skin suit, the skulls, the lampshades, the faces on his wall, not to mention... (laughs) Deny, deny, deny. Yeah, he's got a dead, (laughs) beheaded, gutted Bernice hanging from the rafters. And after a day and a half of silence on Ed's part, he finally begins to open up about what had happened to Bernice. He also fails a lie detector test. Mm-hmm. And on his farm, more bones are found buried in a trench. And one skull had a gold tooth, and it was believed to have belonged to a man. Mm. Now, Ed tells authorities that he did indeed murder Bernice, but he was in a daze <laughs> the whole yeah. time yeah, leading right. up to the murder. Right. But somehow he remembers dragging her body out to his car and taking the cash register from the store and hauling it all back to his house. But he didn't remember shooting her in the head with a twenty-two. Well, of course not. But police are saying, okay, that accounts for the body hanging in the kitchen. But what about all the other body parts, Ed? Yeah. And Ed tells police that he had stolen all of it from local graves, that he didn't kill any of the people whose body parts were found in his house, except for Mary Hogan. Yeah. Again, he's in a daze when he murders Mary and couldn't recall any of the details, only to say that he had, quote, accidentally shot her, end quote. (laughs) And while he discusses all of his human part artifacts that he's made with his own two hands, the nipple belt, the whole body... The gloves, he shows zero emotion. He has no remorse. I have to say he's extremely creative. Uh, (laughs) Oh, gosh, a nipple belt? Really? A nipple belt. Oh, my gosh. But he's all business, very matter of fact. And I actually read he was cheerful at times as he was going through the murders and the grave robberies. Wow. And when he's asked if he had sex with the dead bodies, he says no. And you want to know why? Why? Because, quote, they smelled too bad, end quote. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Think on that. Yeah. 
Now, this is a very small community. We've talked about this. And when word gets round about what old Ed's been up to, as you might imagine, Plainfield, Wisconsin is all a titter. (laughs) And also, as you might imagine, if you had buried your Aunt Edna in the last 12 years, her nipples could very well be on a belt in the evidence room down at the police station. So people are wondering, did he get into my loved one's grave? Wow. Because before they find Ed's skin suit, the town folks who knew Ed only had good things to say about him. He was babysitting kids, for goodness sake. I mean, and everyone thought he was a little bit different. Yeah, he's okay. He's weird. And I'm sure there was a farmer or two that was like, he ain't right. (laughs) But they just thought he had a weird grin and a strange sense of humor. And nobody ever thought that Ed was out robbing graves and sewing up a skin suit and had a box of noses under his bed. Wow. So Ed admits that he's made these late night cemetery runs to dig up freshly buried women who looked like his mother and that, okay, he murdered Bernice a couple days ago. And yes, it was him that killed Mary Hogan in the Pine Grove Tavern. He leads authorities to nine graves that he desecrated. And when they open them up, Ed has been pretty truthful, including telling them about Mrs. Adams, whose grave was found empty. Gotcha. She must be the skin suit. Yeah. (laughs) Now, quick question. In all these graves that he grave robbed, did he take parts or did he take the entire body? He would sometimes take the entire body. He would other times take parts. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. But by this time, reporters from all over the world have shown up to this tiny little town in Wisconsin. Uh, Yeah. And these people don't want this attention. They wanted to hunt deer and have some cheese curds and watch the Packers. Right. But reporters show up and everyone wants to know about Ed. Mm. And forevermore, this tiny little peaceful town is going to be known as the home of Ed Gein. Mm. Now, because Ed's completely oblivious to how heinous his crimes are, his sanity is brought into question. Okay. (laughs) And it was suggested by his attorney that he plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And in fact, on October 21st, 1957, Ed was arraigned on one count of first degree murder in Washera County Court, where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Ed was diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent, thus unfit for trial. He was sent to Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, a maximum security facility in Walpon, Wisconsin. Now, this really angers the whole family of Bernice because they don't think he's ever going to be held responsible. He's never going to be held accountable for these deaths or the death of Mary Hogan. And don't forget all the graves that he robbed and desecrated. These people are angry, too. Yeah. So Ed's farm goes up for auction along with some of his belongings. So his house appraised at $4,700 or $48,000 and change today. Okay. The land, 195 acres, and his car, furniture, and musical instruments. None of those are made from skin. I knew you were going to ask that. So just to be clear, they weren't. I want to see the banjo. Yeah, I knew you were going to say something like that. So I wrote it in here. None of them had skin. No, they were just real, real instruments. But the company who was handling the sale of all of this decided they were going to charge a fee of 50 cents for people to come and look at the items that were up for auction, which today would be five dollars. Wow. Five bucks. You have to pay five bucks to go see what's up for auction. And the citizens of Plainfield were livid. They were so angry. They were madder than a pack of wild dogs on a three-legged cat. That's what I wrote in here. (laughs) And they got the auction house to stop the 50 cent entrance fee, but they still felt like Ed's house and property were becoming a, quote, museum for the morbid, end quote. 
Curiosity Be- seekers. Because it was. Yeah. Because it was. Yeah. Then early in the morning on March 20th, 1958, the Plainfield Volunteer Fire Department is called out to old Ed's place. What do you think's going on? (laughs) I'm guessing the place was burning down. The farmhouse is ablaze. (laughs) And the house burned to the ground. Police are sure it's an arsonist. The house was empty. It didn't have electricity, so it can't be faulty wiring, Right, right? Right, right. And even though they sort of carried out an investigation, I read that it was, quote, thorough. But I think it's really important for everybody to know that the local fire chief was Frank Warden, son of Bernice. Uh, Okay. And really, this whole town, they just wanted this. They wanted the they wanted the house gone. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just erase this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when they tell Ed, when they go, yo, crazy. Your house burned to the ground. He said. What? Quote, well, just as well. He shrugged his shoulders. Just as well. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The whole town wanted that house gone. Yeah. Now, most of his belongings were trash in the fire, but some things did make it through. And these things would be auctioned off, including farm equipment, Mm -hmm. Ed's 1949 Ford sedan, which was used to haul dead bodies. And this caused a bidding war. It was eventually sold for $670, or in today's money, about eight grand. Wow. And the guy who purchased the car later put it on display at the county fair where thousands and thousands of people paid a quarter just to get a peek at the Gein Ghoul car. Oh, wow. So the auctioneer had the wrong idea. The guy who bought the car kind of had the right idea if he was going to make money off of it that was the way to do it capitalism at its finest yeah right? the yep. ghoul car come yeah. see the ghoul car good for him they should have burnt the ghoul car too yeah, true true psychologists from all over the world attempted to find out what made ed gein tick because this is a guy who was diagnosed with a combination of necrophilia transvestitism and fetishism the mm. trifecta right right But after spending 10 years in the mental institution where he's recovering, the courts finally said Ed's competent to stand trial. Mm. And on November 7th, 1968, Ed Gein's trial began to see whether or not he was guilty based on reason of insanity for the murder of Bernice Warden. And this trial will last one week. Seven witnesses will take the stand. A psychiatrist testified that Ed had told him that he didn't know whether the killing of Bernice was intentional or accidental. Ed just didn't know. Yeah, right. And Ed told him that while he examined the gun in Warden's store, the gun went off, accidentally killing Bernice. Right in the back of the head. Right in the back of the head. (laughs) And then he dragged her out. So, yeah. yeah. Then Ed testified that after trying to load a bullet into the rifle, it discharged. He said that he had not aimed the rifle at Bernice, and he didn't remember anything else that happened that morning. Wow. Now, remember earlier he said he remembered dragging her out. Right, right. And he remembered taking the cash register. Right. Now, at the request of the defense, Ed's trial was held without a jury with Judge Robert H. Golmar presiding. And Ed was found guilty by Golmar on November 14th. A second trial dealt with his sanity. After testimony by doctors for the prosecution and defense, the judge ruled Ed Gein, quote, not guilty by reason of insanity, end quote, and ordered him committed to Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. So he's sending him back. And Ed would spend the rest of his life in a mental hospital. And here's what the judge wrote, quote, 
Due to prohibitive costs, Ed Gein was tried for only one murder, that of Mrs. Warden. He also admitted to killing Mary Hogan, end quote. So what they're saying is, we would have put him away for both of them. Mm. We don't have the money in this very small court to pay for this one more time. Right. He's just, we're just putting him away. Right. So Ed goes back to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane and the families of Bernice and Mary and those whose graves were robbed. They never, they never feel like justice was was served. Well, sure. Yeah. But, it, but it is over. Right. Then in 1974, Ed files a petition with the Washer County Clerk of Courts claiming that he had now recovered from his mental illness and was fully competent <laughs> and there was no reason why he should remain in any hospital. I'm fine now. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. It's all good. You can trust me. I'm good. You just let me out. <laughs> yeah. And a judge reviewed this and rejected his petition, and he was returned to the hospital. Then in 1978, Ed was moved to Mendota Mental Institute in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. Now, meanwhile, at the hospital, Ed is very happy. Really? He's happier than he's ever been in his life. He got along well with the other patients. He mostly kept to himself. So did he really enjoy or did he actually thrive in a structured environment where he's always told what to do? Like Augusta used to treat him, yeah, very regimented. That makes sense. Yeah, and he got three square meals a day. He gained a bunch of weight. He continued to read. He was a huge reader. Mm -hmm. He loved his regular chats with the staff psychologists. He enjoyed the handicraft he was assigned, which was stone polishing, rug making, and other forms of occupational therapy. Okay. I don't think they ever gave him a needle and thread. Yeah, I was going to say, nothing sharp. No sharp objects. <laughs> yeah, well, he's not sewing anything either yeah, was my yeah, point. Yeah. But he's still making stuff. Right. Just not with body parts. Right. Ed got an interest in ham radios, and he'd been permitted to use the money that he earned while he was at the hospital to buy an inexpensive receiver. All in all, Ed was a model patient, one of the few in the hospital who never required medication or a tranquilizer to keep his crazy under control. Really? Never took a drug. Wow. Never took a drug. So is he nuts? I mean, yes, he's nuts, but I mean, usually when somebody's schizophrenic or whatever. Well, we're going to talk about that okay. in just a sec. Yeah. Apparently, all he would do that sort of aroused suspicion was that he would stare at the nurses or any of the other female staff members who wandered into his line of vision. Mm. But there were lots of people who said it was hard to tell if Ed was crazy at all. Yeah. And according to Superintendent Schubert, he told reporters, this is the guy who runs the mental hospital, that Ed Gein was a model patient. Quote, if all our patients were like him, we'd have no trouble at all, end quote. Wow. And his diagnosis was schizophrenia, but lots of people think that that was not necessarily true. And according to Dr. Gail Sauls, clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, Wheel Cornell School of Medicine. <laughs> well, there's a title. Quote, psychodynamically, these murders were driven by his relationship with his mother and by going after figures like her and destroying them, he would attempt to subsume them by taking their parts and making them part of him. Oh, wow. Still, from a mental health perspective, we don't know if his crimes had to do with a lack of moral compass or a pleasure in making others suffer. 
That's all psychopathy, which is different than schizophrenia, where you would expect psychosis, specific delusions and hallucinations that make it impossible for someone to understand right from wrong and over time a cognitive decline. Right. Nothing I've read about Ed Gein suggests schizophrenia. That's not to say he couldn't have been schizophrenic, end quote. So official diagnosis is... They They don't know. (laughs) Yeah, he ain't right. Yeah. Yeah, he just ain't right. Yeah, just the fact that he didn't have to take any medications, that's that's an indicator of was he really schizophrenic or... But what kind of mindset does it take to skin bodies, dead bodies, dig them up, turn them into his mother? Yeah, but if you look at at his upbringing and the way that she just completely... Dominated his life and he couldn't live without her, so he turned her rooms into a shrine and then went out and tried to, like, make body parts to bring her back to life? Wow. Yeah. Edward Theodore Gein would die on July 26, 1984 at the Mendota Mental Health Institute due to respiratory failure secondary to lung cancer. He was 77. He was buried at 6 a.m. the next day on July 27th with only four other people present. Wow. Over the years, souvenir seekers chipped pieces from his gravestone at the Plainfield Cemetery until the stone was just out and out stolen (laughs) in the year 2000. Wow. It was recovered in June 2001 in Seattle, Washington. Really? All the way from Wisconsin to Seattle. Wow. It was placed in storage at the Washera County Sheriff's Department. The gravesite itself is now unmarked, but it's not unknown because Ed is buried next to his his mother mother. and his father and his brother. But he's next to his mom. Wow. So all these years after Ed's night raids at the cemetery and his sewing of skin suits, many of the locals in Plainfield think Ed's spirit still haunts their town. There have been psychics attacked in the Washera jail cell where Ed was being held. Really? Another local man named Tom bought a knife and another tool believed to have been used by Ed at an auction years before. And he said that it's only brought tragedy to his home. He lost all of his family members one by one. Really? And this man blames this, these objects. And he has no explanations for why he's kept them. In the woods surrounding where the farmhouse used to sit, it's said that there are voices and screams that can be heard on the property at night. Mm. And Ed inspired... Lots of writers like myself, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because truth is always stranger than fiction. Author Robert Block was inspired to write a story about Norman Bates, a character based on Ed, which became the central theme of Alfred Hitchcock's classic thriller, Psycho. And in 1974, the classic thriller by Toby Hooper, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, has many things that really apply to Ed, although there's no character that is an exact replica of Ed. Right. Years later, he provided the inspiration for the character of another serial killer, Buffalo Buffalo Bill, Bill. in Silence of the Lambs. And just like Ed, Buffalo Bill treasured women's skin and wore it like clothing and some insane transvestite ritual, you know, where he puts the whole suit on. Yeah. It rubs the lotion on its skin (laughs) or else it gets the hose again. Yep. But it's more than just Psycho and Silence of the Lambs. Ed's story was loosely adapted into lots of movies, including Deranged, In the Light of the Moon, Ed Gein, The Butcher of Plainfield, Ed Gein, The Musical. What? And the Rob Zombie (laughs) films of 1,000 Corpses and its sequel, The Devil's Reject. There's an Ed Gein musical? I was going to say, we got to go back to that one. I mean, that was just the list that I found, Ed Gein, The Musical. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, but he's mostly known as Norman Bates, Leatherface, and Buffalo Bill. Yeah. Although he does make an appearance as the character of Dr. Oliver Threadson in the TV series American Horror Story Asylum. Great, great series. Now, I want to leave you with one more story. During 1957, when Ed's atrocities are first found out, a woman stepped forward, Adeline Watkins. Adeline was 50 years old and lived with her mother in a small apartment in Plainfield. And Adeline told authorities and reporters that she had a 20-year romance with Ed. What? Quote, He was so nice about doing things I wanted to do that sometimes I felt I was taking advantage of him, end quote. Their last date was two years before Ed's crimes were found out, but definitely during the time that he was robbing graves and making skin suits. Wow. Because their last date was February 6th, 1955. Quote, that night he proposed to me, not in so many words, but I knew what he meant, end quote. Adeline was described in the newspaper article as a plain woman with graying bangs and horn-rimmed glasses. (laughs) Quote, I turned him down, but not because there was anything wrong with him. It was something wrong with me. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to live up to what he expected of me, end quote. It's not you, it's me. It's not you and your skin suit. It's me. (laughs) Wow. But to Adeline, Ed was a sweet man who always had her home by 10 p.m. But he also discussed every murder they'd ever heard about in the area. He would discuss these murders with her, and Ed would tell Adeline what the murderer did wrong, the mistakes that the murderer had made. Wow. Now, does that sound like somebody who's schizophrenic? Nope. Or does that sound nope. like somebody who really knows what they're doing? Oh, yeah. But as you're re-watching some of your favorite scary movies for Halloween this week— If it includes Psycho or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Silence of the Lambs, you're really watching the story of Ed Gein, Hmm. the good, kind, sweet babysitter of children who had a skin suit in his closet. But that's the story of Ed Gein, and that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, it's the season of Halloween, and if you're not just a fan of true crime, but also scary tales based on real life, then I have got a read for you. Beauty is a dark thriller and love story based on actual events. From 1911 to 1933, 166 patients, mostly mentally challenged girls, left the Rosewood Asylum for the feeble-minded outside of Baltimore, Maryland, under writs of habeas corpus to unknowingly become slaves for the blue bloods of Baltimore's society. When it was finally discovered, only 102 girls could be accounted for. The other 64 were never located or heard from again. This is the tale of one of those girls as her true story unfolds 100 years later for novelist and part-time home renovator Eliza Lovelace. Between the world that Eliza can see and the one she can only feel lies the truth of beauty, where one girl's dream is another girl's nightmare. Don't miss Reading Beauty during the spooky season, available online at all major booksellers. And you can always find all of my books at chriscalvert.com. Remember, don't read it alone or in the dark. And thanks for being a Hitch to Homicide listener. 
My, oh my, Ed, uh, mm. I have to say this is probably one of the most gruesome and grossest stories yeah. that we've done yet. Yeah, I mean, wow. yeah, yeah, and wow. there are only two known kills, but yeah. a little Frankenstein in there, a little, you know, robbing the graves <laughs> to put the person together, and yeah. Well, let me it's try. To, let me try to cleanse my palate here. <laughs> Let's do a little. Well, bless your heart. Let's do it. Well, bless your heart. So we're gonna we're gonna do a little uh, little Halloween bless your heart now. All Let's right? do it. All right. Forget inflatable ghosts and comical gravestones. Painted pumpkins are so passe, and don't even get us started on those witches who seem to crash into trees of every front yard in suburban America. The most desirable creature this Halloween is Home Depot's, wait for it, 12-foot-tall yard skeleton. There's one in our neighborhood. I know. There's I know. one in our neighborhood. And Scotty barks at it, It too. does. He yeah. does. <laughs> Just ask a single mom in Northwest Austin who had one stolen right <gasps> out in front in, in her front yard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually saw the video of this. <sighs> On Saturday, October 15th, an unidentified person drove into a Northwest Austin condo community, casually loaded somebody else's enormous <gasps> plastic skeleton decoration in the back of a white GMC Denali SUV <laughs> and then drove off. KXAN. That's a nice car. Go oh, buy know. your own skeleton. Oh, I know. Come on. How much could it be? <laughs> KXAN was the first to report the Halloween heist. And, and, it's amazing. How do you get a 12-foot-tall skeleton into an SUV? It's crazy. That's terrifying. What sort of monster would do something so depraved? No one knows, although it does appear the thief is a brunette woman in a red scarf. Not a redhead, as reported by many outlets, less committed to fact-checking than this one. The exact height of the skeleton was also in dispute, though it's been widely reported as 14 feet Eagle Eye Reddit commentators identified this model as this 12-foot butte from Home Depot. Okay. Regardless, it's Big Bone. It's Big Bone. It's Big Bone. How did the thief get away with this? Must have been undercover of darkness. Mm-mm, no way. Nope. The most haunting aspect of this crime was that it took place in broad daylight. <gasps> They didn't even do it at night? No, just before they 5 They just stole it. Yeah, just before 5 p.m. on Saturday, <laughs> according to the condo HOA board president, Gracia Ruskin. Or Grazia Ruskin, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Uh, the act was incredibly brazen, to say the least, Ruskin told MYSA. Uh, that's yeah. an understatement. Yeah. Then the thief must be a criminal mastermind, you think? No. No, okay. No, no, the crime was committed in full view of the neighbor's front door surveillance camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you've seen the video. Yeah, of this. I mean, come on, people. Everybody's got a, a, a ring doorbell or, or whatever. They're gonna they're gonna see you. Law enforcement authorities have the highly entertaining footage, which has since gone viral. The two-minute clip shows the bandit parking directly in front of the big guy, unceremoniously toppling it from its perch on the front lawn, and then struggling to stuff it into the back of the Denali. 
tantalizingly, the video ends before we can see how exactly the spooky swindler managed to squeeze Was the Was it hanging in. out of the back of this car well, as she drives away? I, we don't know. because oh, that's, okay. that's when the video ended. Oh, that's okay. That's all I saw. Okay. Neighbors are asking. <laughs> this is the best part, though. Neighbors are asking for help identifying the subject. They also pitched in to offer a $50 reward for any information that leads to the poor creature's return. $50 for the skeleton to come back. I'm thinking $50, people are going to, and whatever. Wait, oh, you mean to like get give information? Yeah. Come on, people. No. Let's, let's throw a little bit more in the till here. No. So if you've got any tips, send it to oakshadowsatx at gmail.com. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Oakshadowsatx, that's all one word. At gmail.com. There is a video and we'll post it on the in-laws and the outlaws. So thank you to the Texas Monthly for this bless your heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How nuts is that? I won't be able to walk past that skeleton and not think of somebody pulling up, I like know. grabbing it and I was really chucking bummed. it in the back. Yeah, I was really bummed that the video ended because you didn't get to see how the heck she got this 12-foot skeleton out of the neighborhood in this denial. Y'all, don't be taking people. No, no, no. You know what? Wait, get some more treats, less tricks. Yeah. Go enjoy your Halloween, but but don't be doing anything bad. Yeah. That's my advice. Yep. Well, if you've got to bless your heart, you know somebody who stole the skeleton. You know somebody who took the skeleton, and we need to bless their heart. You can send it on over to us. All you have to do is go to our website. There's a pull-down menu. You can bless somebody's heart, and you can also suggest a case. We yeah. have a running list. Yep. It's very exciting. We've got lots coming this year. Bring them on. That's right. Happy Halloween, everybody. That's my husband in this control room over there. That's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.